This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so my name's Amogha Vajra, and Surya Vangsan, a few times in the past, has said, why don't you talk to Dana Kosha? And he said earlier this year, because he said, you've got a sangha retreat, Uh, why don't you come up? And I thought, yeah. And I was able to this year, so here I am at Dana Kosha on the Glasgow Buddhist Centre sangha retreat. And... Not only that, he said more things to me. He said, uh, he said, well, we're going to have a theme. Do you want to give a talk? And I said, well, okay, yeah, I'll give a talk. And then he said, okay, the theme is the Terigata, the Terigata. And uh, give a talk on one of the, sometimes they're called Songs of the Elders. So I said, uh, right, okay. And I've read them before, and they're pretty full on. I don't know if you've been reading any of the um, extracts uh, that have been around, but they're pretty full on. They're really full on. These are early Buddhists that gained enlightenment. So they're not just messing around, as it were. They're not just tinkering around. They have uh, a kind of hardcore, yeah. They are, they've really gone profoundly deep in their practice. So I said, okay, I'll give a talk. And then I thought, well, who will I give a talk on? So I was reading through these uh, songs of the elders. And uh, the one that struck me was on Mahakashapa. So I'm going to talk on Mahakashapa. Yeah. And I think yesterday, Sue actually gave a proper talk. Uh, what I'm going to give today is possibly a bit more like a story. And so I was really pleased that he was talking about fairy stories yesterday. <laughs> he was. He did say, you can check in the transcript, the words did. He talked about stories and even fairy story was mentioned at one point. So I'm not sure if I'm going to tell a fairy story, but uh, I'm going to tell a story, and it will be the story of Mahakashapa, and we'll hear a bit, we'll hear some of his verses at the end. And as I'm talking, I, I was thinking, well, there's two types of truth. There is narrative truth and there's cognitive truth. Mostly in the West, we're very familiar with cognitive truth. Cognitive truth is what appeals to a rational mind, it's the truth of science. It's the yeah, it's the truth of science. That's a good way of putting it. It's very cognitive, very rational. But there's also uh, what's called narrative truth. A narrative truth is the truth of legend or poetry. And uh, you know, if you've been out in the weather today, you might come back in and say, "God, it was raining cats and dogs," and people will understand what you mean. But it wasn't literally <laughs> raining cats and dogs, yeah, yeah. So there is such a, this is, this is a narrative truth, it's the poetic truth that conveys, uh, conveys something, but it's not, it's not to be taken literally. Uh, so some of what I'll be talking about uh, is prob- probably actually happened. Some of it will be my, maybe, understanding of what may well have happened, and that will become apparent. Uh, so it's probably more in the realm of hagiography. So... We think again in the West a lot about uh, history and we think we want to get facts and details and this happened then and that happened then and then somebody did that and they did it in that place and they went to that place. And that does convey something. But again, uh, more traditionally uh, in, 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 in Buddhism, 
you often get hagiographies, and they are based on based on um, some historical events, but they're also conveying the feeling or the the experience of what it was like that went on. So this is what hagiography is, and it's not about hags. It's not the biography of hags. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's conveying something more poetic, a, a combination of poetic truth and literal truth. Yeah, so this is what you get a lot in Buddhist uh, texts, when you get a life of, say a life of Padmasambhava, some of it probably actually happened, and someday something, uh, and the rest of it happened, but it was as if it was like this. So it was as if this was what happened. Okay. So you all sitting comfortably? Good. Good. So we're going to begin. I'm going to time travel. Yes, I'm going to tell you a story. So all stories happen kind of slightly in a different space. So we're going to do some travelling. So do sit tightly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, put your seatbelts on. So we're going to travel. We're going to travel back. We're going to do two types of travel. We're going to travel in time and we're going to travel in space. And I've got some... I've got Doctor Who's got his TARDIS. Well... I can do one better, and I just use symbols. We're going to we're going to travel on the sound. We're going to travel on sound. So we're going to travel. Maybe not quite at the speed of sound, but we're going to travel in sound. Yeah. So as the sound goes, as the sound, the sound's going to be travelling. So we're going to travel with this sound. Yeah. And we are lifting off from Danakosha. You're all pretty safe. Don't wander off too far on your own. Yeah. Stay with us. And where are we going? Well, we're going to go east. Yeah. So we're heading back in time, and we're heading east. And we're still travelling. We're going back 10 years, 100 years, further. We're going back 1,000 years. We're going back even further. It's still possible. We might have to ring the bell again to get a bit further. We're going further back. We're going back two and a half thousand years and we've found the place that we're going to and this is a very flat land yeah and as you familiarize yourself with it you'll find that yeah it's quite flat in the very far distance you can see a sea there's lots of green around there's lots of forest around and in the distance there's also some mountains and these mountains have got snow on top, so they're very high, yeah, they're very high, and sometimes you know that there's a cold wind can come down off of those mountains, you can feel it on your skin, but there's three seasons in this land, there is the cool season, there's a hot season, and there's a rainy or monsoon season, and this land is called Magadha, and this land is also called India. Yeah, so we know it as India. In the past, people knew it under different names, but we will call it Magadha. So we're back there two and a half thousand years ago. There is lots of people are living in villages. There is kings ruling over lands. There is lots happening. So some of them, if you went to Village India today, you'd probably see something very similar. So we've travelled back two and a half thousand years ago 
and we'll begin to hear the cry of a newborn baby. So you're just born. And uh, even back in India, they used to spank you in your bottom just to check you had a good pair of lungs. And uh, he's beginning to cry. It's a boy. It's a young boy. And his father and mother are both present. Well, the mother's always present, but the father's <laughs> present as well. Yeah. And, but the father's there as well. They're both very proud. They're both very happy. They've had a newborn son. Yeah, so the mother's exhausted, but very happy. And uh, the father's kind of beside himself. He's got a son. Oh, fantastic. He's got an heir to his throne. Because this is, um, no, maybe not quite a king, but he thinks he's a king. He's said to be, he's said to, uh, he owns 16 villages. So I don't know what size the villages are. Maybe you can imagine better than I can, but they are, he's the owner of 16 villages. So, um, I don't know, that could be quite a big bit of land. And anyway, this particular man is very wealthy. Yeah. And he, he assumes, he, he feels like, well, maybe if it was Scotland, they might think he was the clan chief. But he's in India, so he's a, he's a raja, he's a king. He feels himself to be a king. He's very happy that he's got a son. And his mother is very proud that she's got somebody that she can bring up, somebody that she can dote on and love and bring up. So they're both very happy. And, uh, yeah, so things progress in this young boy's life. He... Uh, begins to grow older and his character begins to form. He's, we begin to get to see that this young lad has a character. Uh, and his character is that, well, he's quite a happy child. Yeah, He's bright, he's happy, and he's very contented on his own. He's happy just doing stuff on his own. Um, so his parents sometimes think, well, maybe I'll need to get in some playmates. We're not sure if he's got any brothers or sisters, but he's quite happy. He's happy on his own, he's quite bright. And uh, he goes through his early years, and he goes into his teenage years, and this character just begins to, this just seems something quite special about him. I'm sure you've all probably met somebody that you just think, in, inside, there's just something quite blessed about this particular person. And so this young boy, and he's got a name, his name is Kashapa. So he just seems, inside, very happy, very bright, very contented. And... Yeah, his, his, his father's the king of these 16 villages. His mother's very, very proud. And uh, especially as you get into teenage years, you know, you, those of you that are uh, parents probably know this, it's the, the teenage years are a bit more difficult between parents and uh, children. So it seems like there's a bit of tension. And it's a bit unusual tension in this particular family. Because here we have Kashyap, a very bright, very happy uh, happy to spend time on his own, loves where he's living because he can quite easily get out into the jungle and get out into the wilderness and just really enjoy the beauty of the natural world around him. But there's a bit of tension. And the tension is that his father wants Kashapa to become like him. His father wants Kashapa to grow up and to take on the 16 villages. But Kashapa's not really that interested. Kashapa's much more interested in sort of leaving a worldly life. So there's a bit of tension in the, in the household. So, you know, his father is, uh, you know, just trying to 
give him all the things that he thinks he would want. So he's dragging him down to the eye shop saying, do you fancy an iPhone? Do you know do you want, do you want, do you want the iPads are out now? The, the, the store's got iPads. And Cash was saying, no, I don't really want one. Like, what, what do you want? And he says, well, I'm just quite happy going off and wandering. No, just leave me be. I'm just quite happy. And his mother, he's in his teenage years, his teenage years. Uh, and his mother has sort of been doting on him and seeing him grow off up, playing on his own and being quite happy on his own and thinking, is there something wrong with my boy? Because he's not chasing after women. And uh, he's not... So she's like, why don't you get yourself a girlfriend? And he said, nah, I don't really want a girlfriend. I'm just quite happy as I am. So there's a wee bit of tension. Yeah, the, 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 the parents can't really quite understand him. They're really into... His father's really... Uh, happy that he's the in charge of 16 villages and he's proud that that's, that's who he is, he's the Raja, he's the king of these 16 villages, he's got some status, he's got, he's got a place in the world because he's uh, got this position and his, his mother is very um, well she's a bit concerned because he doesn't really seem to be interested in, in girls and so he's wondering well is he gay? And he's obviously not gay, but he's not interested in girls, so what's the thing? What's the thing? Uh, but he's just happy. He himself doesn't see it's a problem, but his parents are a bit worried. Uh, so they're saying to him, well, come on, I'll buy you. I'll buy you an iPod, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have a big birthday, a birthday party for your 18th birthday? And he says, no, no, look, we'll just waste all that money. There's, there's floods in Pakistan just over there. They're really short of water. They're really short of food. Send that money over there. Buy them some water purifying. Buy them some equipment so they can build wells and things like that. And his parents are like, what, you don't want a party? Yeah. But he said, no, I'll go and do something more worthwhile with it. You know, this party will be over and it'll be a bit meaningless. We'll get together, we'll eat lots of food uh, and afterwards we're a bit bloated. And, but, you know, we could do a lot more with that money than just waste it in a party. Uh... Yeah, so things like that are going on, and there's a bit of tension there. Yeah, so his, his parents are quite worldly in a way, very successful in, their, in what they're doing, and they've got this son who just doesn't really play the same game, and they're a bit concerned. So they're badgering him all throughout his teenage years. Oh, you know, take on, become the king, look after all the properties, learn how to do it. Um, you know, his father's very proud, and uh, you know. He's, he's got all these villages that they're in charge of. And the mother keeps saying, well, you need to get married. You need to get married. And his dad says, you know, son, your mother's right. You know, she's always right. You need to just do what your mum says. Get married. You know, it's a similar story all over the world. <laughs> You've got to do what your mother tells you. Uh, but he thinks, oh, if I get married, I'm going to end up caught up, a bit like my father is, spending all my time going from here to there, doing all these official duties, and I don't really want to do that. I want to, I want to go off, I want to learn to meditate, I want to leave the world, I want to find what's really valuable. Um, but they keep on at him, so he finally decides that he's going to give in, but he's going to try and do it in his terms. He said, okay, well listen, I will get married, but only on one condition. And I'll tell you this condition tomorrow. So he goes away and he he moulds a figure of a female, so all the curves, beautiful face, and he uh, dresses the figure up in all the silks, and he hands this 
beautiful image of a female to his uh, mother and father. He says, well, listen, if you can find a woman who is as beautiful as this image, then yes, I'll marry her. So he hands over the image, and uh, he's not quite sure if he's done the right thing, but he's, he thinks they'll never be able to find anybody as beautiful as this. So his parents are, right, okay. So they, they get the men on the job. So, right, we've got a task for you. Eight top guys, come in. Okay, you've got to search the land for this beautiful woman. Our son will only marry this woman that looks like this. Or this is your task. And uh, you don't have a choice. This is what you've got to do. Yeah, go and find this. Go and find this woman. And so... It's a bit like the Cinderella, someone was talking about Cinderella the other day, instead of having a slipper, they've kind of got the image, so they've got this image and, you know, they think, oh, okay, this is you and me, but let's go and find this woman. Uh, so they go off and they're looking around the countryside and lo and behold, they're told that there is a really beautiful woman in one of the villages and they think, well, I wonder if it's, this is the one, I wonder if this is the one. <laughs> and uh, they... They go and they find that she looks just like the, the figure that Kashapa has modelled. And uh, they talk to the parents and they say, okay, uh, we are the, we're the Brahmins that we work for the king of these 16 villages and he's sent us on a, on a mission. And we're looking, he's looking for a, a beautiful daughter to marry his son who will become the king. And uh, the... the uh, the parents that he's talked to, oh, that's funny, we've, this, we've got a lovely daughter, but she's refusing to marry Andy. She says she just wants to leave and go and join her, have a wor leave the worldly life. She said, oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, a wee bit of arranged marriage goes on. And Kashapa and, let me remember, Bada. That's this, this, the young princess is named Bada, the beautiful princess. They are arranged to be married. And they're both not sure about this arranged marriage. They're thinking, well, I'd really like just to go off and um, leave that worldly life. You know, rather than getting more into it, I want to leave it. Uh, so they think, oh, I'd better do the right thing and write to this person and tell them what I'm like. So they both have the same thought and they write a letter. Uh, no texts in those days. So they write a letter <laughs> and fold it up, give it to the... I don't even know if there was a post. Was there a post? <laughs> we don't even know if there was post um, but there was letters and the letters are, the letters are going the rest are crossing over and the parents are quite fly they think, okay they're not in, they, they want to leave the worldly life they might, we better make sure that nothing happens so they, they're intercepting the mail so they intercept the mail and, and they say, ah, letter letter, don't want to do this ah, change it round letter, do want to do this <laughs> They, so they switch the letters and different letters go. So the, the marriage goes ahead. Marriage goes ahead. So the, 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 these parents are quite crafty. They're quite... They know a thing or two. So the marriage goes ahead. And uh, as Bada and Kashapa meet and uh, get to know each other, they both introduce themselves and say what they're like. But they do. They're, they're as good. They're, they do communicate uh, saying, well, listen, okay, I'm... I'm doing this a bit under forced, forced, what's the next thing that would go with that? I'm doing this under pressure. Yeah. And, uh, but really what I want to do is I want to kind of leave this behind and I would rather go off into the jungle. And they both begin to realise that they're both of the same heart. 
He said, oh, that's funny, that's what I want. And did you not get my letter? And I said, no, but did you not get my letter? No, well, I wonder what happened there. You know, so they're both beginning to understand that actually they're coming into this marriage, but they're not. They are, they are uh, really under their parents' pressure. So they do get married, uh, but they make a vow that they are not going to consummate their marriage. And they wonder, well, how are we going to do this? Young man, young woman, bed together. Hmm. And when I gave this talk before, I said at this point, well, you know what it's like when push comes to shove? Think <laughs> 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 that, you know, you've got a young man and a young woman in a bed together. Well, you know, what's going to follow? Um, so what they decide is they decide that they are going to have a garland of flowers down the middle of the bed. So they put a garland, of, yeah, you may well shake your head. <laughs> you, you put a garland, a garland of flowers down the middle of the bed and uh, that's there to remind them of what they really want to do with their lives. Because they kind of realise, well, okay, it might be quite nice, a night of fun, or a few nights of fun, but then if we want to be going off and leaving the world of life, we won't be able to do that if we get children. You know, we want to bring our kids up. You know, we want to look after them, we want to provide for them for all those years. So uh, we'd, we'd be putting off for many, many years what we really want to do. So we thought, well, we'd better not get to push comes to shove. <laughs> so let's keep, the, let's keep the flowers there. And it works. Yeah, it works. It's a story. <laughs> this is what the story says. <laughs> a gallant. So if you're ever in any... If you're in a tight spot, <laughs> gallon of flowers. It works every time. <laughs> so the years begin to unfold. They're, they're married young. Uh, Bada's 16, Kash was 20 when they get married. And uh, they're living together, they're living there with Kash uh, parents. And he's looking after his 16 village. He's probably quite busy. You need to get on your 4x4 four four to get round them all. Um, but his, the parents die, and Kashapa and Bada take on the responsibility. They take on the, they're quite responsible people. You know, they're, they're very ethical and realise, well, we've got a responsibility to run the estate well for the people that are working here. So they, they take on the, the course of looking after the, the estate, the 16 villages, and they do it very well. They're, they're very good at it. And um, so it happens that one sort of harvest time, they are. Kashyap is out in the fields overseeing the, the, the replowing of the fields ready for the next season. And as he's watching the, the plough and the ploughshare going through the, the ground, he's, he's seeing the earth getting turned over. And as the earth's getting turned over, he's seeing the worms and all the different insects that are, their beds are being disturbed. A bit like a certain famous Scots poet who <laughs> saw the very same thing. And um, but he also sees that following the plough and the ploughshare are all the birds, and the birds are getting their meal from the insects that are disturbed by the by the plough. Mm-hmm. He's quite disturbed at this kind of carnage. He's got quite a sensitive heart, and he sees the the all the insects just being eaten by the by the birds that are following the plough, and he's quite disturbed at this. And he turns to some. He says, "This is awful. This is a." Whose karma is this? All these, all this carnage, all these, all these disturbed lives, all these uh, lives that are being taken, being killed. 
who's, who's, whose car is this going to be? And uh, the man who's the plowman is looking up and says, well, it's you, you're, you're the boss, you're in charge of the 16 villages, you're in charge of the state, this is your car, not I'm afraid. And Cash was really deeply disturbed by this. He thinks, oh, didn't quite realise that. Well, that's so. He's just quite. So it's a bit like a Sam Vega arises. Yeah, so he says, oh my goodness, I need to do something about this. This is awful, all this suffering. Uh, I can't really bear it. You know, I can't really bear it. Meanwhile, at home, uh, at the same time, the sesame harvest has come in and. Um, Bada is overseeing the sesame harvest, and as the as the seeds are laid out to dry in the, in the hot sun, um, all the insects that are attracted by the smell and by some food, again they're they're being eaten by another the other flock of birds that know that this is going to be happening. So she's witnessing carnage back at home, and she's also deeply disturbed and thinking, "My goodness, all this killing, all this suffering, whose karma is this going to be?" And she turns to her lady maid and says, "Well." all this suffering uh, that's happening here whose who's karma is this going, who's going to who's going to bear this karma and the ladies made tons as well but you're the you're the queen of all this estate this is your karma and uh, it really hits home to her oh my goodness all this suffering and it's my it's, it's going to I'm going to bear this so again that kind of Sam Vega arises of uh, this just is not just got to do something about this. Got to do something about this. So Kashyapa returns and um, they, uh, they're talking when they both return back to the back home and they're sharing their day and they both realise that they want to do something about this and they want to, they want to go forth. They want to, this is now time to leave their worldly life. They've followed their parents' and wishes and instructions, but really they can't bear it any longer. Their, their will to live a less worldly life is so strong that they've got to do something about it. So what they do is they send some servants down to the bazaar and they ask them to come back with some yellow robes and two begging bowls. So, so they send down to the bazaar. So I like that, isn't it? <laughs> Bring me two robes and uh, two begging bowls. We're leaving. <laughs> so that's but that's what happens. You know, the the, the, the servants bring back the the robes, and these are the robes of the wandering med- mendicants, the sadhus that were just wandering in India. Um, yeah, that was that was signify that you were a sadhu, and they've got the begging bowls as well. So they decide that they're going to head off. The next day they head off, dressed in their in, in their wanderers' robes with their begging bowls slung over their shoulder, and they shave each other's head just as that last mark of kind of going forth. They shave each other's hair off, and that's them. Uh, they're on their way, and they set out, and they are um, they're leaving behind their estates, and um, the the people that are on working on the estate are very upset because they think, well. Who's going to run the estate? And Kashmir says, well, I'm just leaving it in your hands. And those that were slaves, he had set free. He says, well, now's the time. You're now free. You're now free people. But he, they're both determined that they're going to leave. So they leave. And uh, they go forth on the, the wandering life. So this is the life of a sadhu, where you just don yellow robes and get your 
uh, you partake of the wealth of the country and the countryside just by begging and uh, the people support you to do that so they are going forth and um, as they're wandering about they're kind of thinking about what they're doing and the life that they've chosen and they kind of begin to realise that she's still a young beautiful woman he's a young man and they're thinking hmm tongues are going to be wagging you know okay so we've we've kind of gone forth from the household life but people won't really believe us we'll, we'll create a lot of difficulty well, this is going to create a lot of difficulty for ourselves if if we say that we've kind of gone forth from the household life but we're wandering around still as man and woman i don't know if they were still using the gal and the flowers <laughs> um but they would they would they would just realize that actually this is going to cause cause us a lot of difficulty and it's going to create a lot of uh unnecessary, in a way, bad karma for those that are going to gossip about us. Because although we haven't, you know, we are just still uh, platonic. And people will not believe that. And so they'll gossip about us. And it'll be bad for us, and it'll be bad for them, because they'll be gossiping. So they sadly realise they're going to have to part. And there's some suggestions in in this story that for many lifetimes they have been involved together and uh, so this is a really difficult decision for them because they're very deeply fond uh, of each other but they realise that they're going to have to go their different ways Uh, it just won't work because of the culture that they're in, it just won't work so Bada says to Kashapa, okay I think we are going to have to split we are going to go separate ways at least for the, the meantime so when we come to the next fork in the road please you take the right hand fork and I'll take the left hand fork and when we split it'll be very sad and but that'll be us for the meantime you know, we'll, we'll have to do that so they come to the next fork in the road and sadly Bada goes down the left hand road or the left hand path and that's another story and that's another story for another time our story is going to follow Kashapa down the right hand road so uh, Kashapa follows the right hand I don't think there's any significance in that sometimes in the tantra you get this left hand tantra but this is all of that yeah. so who else is on the scene apart from Kashapa and Bada well the Buddha the Buddha is around he has been at Nalanda and he's in that vicinity and when Bada and Kashapa go their separate ways, it's such a spiritually momentous and important time that the earth trembles. It's not an earthquake. It's the ground is shaking because of the momentousness of the act that they're doing. And again, quite many times in, um, in the Buddhist tradition, so like when the Buddha gained enlightenment, it's said that the, the earth trembled in many different types of ways and that was just to signify the momentousness of that occasion so when Bada and Kashapa separate it's a very spiritually momentous occasion very deeply profound and the earth trembles and the Buddha's down that right hand fork funnily enough and he senses the earth trembling and he knows that why this is trembling and he realises that something uh, deeply spiritually important has been happening so he decides that he's going to set off in that direction 
So the Buddha sets off down this road from the other direction from where Kashyapa is going. And the Buddha gets so far and he decides it's time for a rest and uh, finds a fig tree, we're told, and as, his, as was his wont on many occasions, he sits under a fig tree. And uh, he's sitting there waiting and because uh, he knows that somebody's going to come along this road. And then Kashyapa appears, new robes, new begging bowl, striding out. And Kashyapa sees the Buddha. And Kashyapa realises, he sees the sort of spiritual brilliance of the Buddha. And the Buddha just sitting there, as you do, sort of under your fig tree and uh, uh, waiting for your disciple to arrive. <laughs> and Kashyapa senses that this is somebody that's really special. So Kashyapa approaches the Buddha and as he approaches, he just begins to realise there's something more and more special about this person the closer he gets to him. It's probably not long after the Buddha's enlightenment. So there's really still something quite major in the Buddha's demeanour and in, in, uh, in his aura. If you could see his aura, it would have been an enlightened aura. So, uh, so there's just a lovely presence about the Buddha. And Kashyapa approaches the Buddha and proclaims that this, you might, you, from now on, I'm taking you as my teacher. The Buddha doesn't get to say yay or nay. No, he doesn't have a year to make his mind up. Uh, he, has, he has to respond very quickly. And he probably sees that actually this is some cool geezer. This is somebody who is actually really going for it. Yeah. So he's, he responds to Kashmi. He says, yes, fine, I will. I will take you on as one of my disciples. Um, I will be your master. But I'm going to give you a teaching. Yeah, I'm going to give you a teaching. I don't know if this is what uh, happened between Guna City and Dhanabhadri, but this is what happened between the Buddha and uh, Kashyapa. So the Buddha sees Kashyapa, and he... Buddha was very astute, I think, with his perception of people. And he sees Kashyapa, and he thinks, well, what will be of benefit? What can I say that will be of benefit to Kashyapa? So what he says is that Yes, Kashyapa, you can become, do become my disciple. Do, do become part of my Sangha. But I'm going to give you three teachings. And he says, the first teaching that I'll give you is that I always maintain a keen sense of shame and of wrongdoing towards all others in the Sangha. So the Buddha probably says something about Kashyapa's demeanour demeanor, and says that this is somebody who is of... Uh, quite uh, an upper class background but don't uh, don't allow that to get in you in the way of your relationships with others in the sangha don't come don't don't bring a haughty manner into your dealings with others in the sangha so be aware of acting appropriate towards all others in the sangha the second teaching that he gives them he says the second teaching that i'm going to say to you is well, anything, any dharma that you hear or listen to, listen to it with an open mind. And if you find it to be worthwhile, then just let it absorb into your heart. Be as wholehearted as you can about receiving this teaching. And Kashyapa Paul thinks, yeah, that's not a problem. I'm very happy to do both of those things. And then the Buddha says, and there's a third thing I'm going to say to you, there's a third teaching. And this third teaching is, he says, well, as you're practicing, you'll be practicing mindfulness of your body. But as you're practicing mindfulness of your body, don't forget, don't neglect 
the gladness of your heart that's linked with that practice. So yeah, be mindful, get really into your meditation practice, but don't forget, don't neglect the gladness. Yeah. So all that's fine. Kashyapa is very happy to take on these teachings. The Buddha is very happy to take Kashyapa as his disciple. And so they carry on on their journey. And they're walking along, uh, they're walking back towards, actually it's back towards Rajagriha. Uh, Rajagriha is termed a mountain. Um, but I don't know, I'm, I'm told that, well in Indian terms it's a mountain, but it's not that high. It's about 500 feet. Yeah, so it's not really, but it's a mountain for them. So, But they're heading back to the Mount of Rajagriha. And uh, they stop to have a rest. And Kashyapa is very respectful towards his new teacher. So he takes off his robes and he folds it up, takes off his new robes and puts them down on the ground so that the Buddha can sit on them, uh, so the Buddha can have a seat. And uh, the Buddha sits down and says, oh, that's very comfy, that's really nice, thank you very much. You know, yes, It's just quite pleasant. Very nice of him to do that. And Kashyapa senses, he's like, oh, my robes are really soft, but the Buddha has just got these old rags sewn together. Mm. So he thinks, Buddha, I'd like, why don't we swap? Why don't you have my robes, my nice new soft robes, and I'll take on your robes, uh, your uh, rags that you've put together. And um, the Buddha says, uh, are you sure? You know, are you sure you can wear these hempen, worn out rag robes of mine? And uh, Kashyapa says, yeah, I can actually, I want to. So it's quite significant that this last almost vestige of his position, Kashyapa gives away and he takes on the old rag robes of the Buddha and is very happy to, to wear them. And the Buddha just takes Kashyapa's robes. Yeah, that's, that's fine for him. So this is the story of Kashyapa and the Buddha meeting. And it's said that Kashyapa, within seven days, gained enlightenment. So he was a fast mover. <laughs> and he did remarkable. He did remarkably well. So to gain he gained enlightenment in seven days. And as his life unfolded, Kashyapa carried on with many of, well, with his intention to lead a very simple life. <coughs> and he became very well-known, very renowned for his meditation and very renowned for his, uh, well, his austerities, actually. Yeah, he was very keen to practice a simple life so that he didn't get caught up unnecessarily in anything else. And Buddhists, Buddhists are allowed 13 Dutanga practices. This is a list of them if anybody wants to practice them for the rest of the week. And um, Kashapa became very well-renowned for them. Yeah. It's said that he became foremost uh, among the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis uh, about in regard to observing austerities. And when he was asked why he practiced these austerities, he said, well, I practice them because they're for my own well-being. Yeah. They bring me joy. And he also said, well, I also practice them to show that it can be done and that I can be an example for future generations, that it is possible to lead a simple life. And not just a simple life, but a simple life that's full of uh, gladness and joy. So also he was as good as his word, and he did remember the Buddhist teaching about remembering to 
uh, foster and cultivate gladness in his heart while he was practicing his austerities and doing his meditation. So although he led a very simple life, his inner life was incredibly rich. His inner life was very joyful and very glad. So the other, the so that was we're talking something about his life and qualities. So he's foremost among the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis in observing the simple life and the austerities. Uh, the next quality about Kashapa is that it's said that he wouldn't do anything unbefitting a monk for the sake of robes, for alms food, um, for medicine, uh, for anything at all, for house somewhere to stay. He wouldn't, he wouldn't really uh, compromise his ethic, his ethics. So he'd always be, he'd always take what came his way. So when, when the, when the, the bhikkhus were wandering around, they'd have their bowl and that's where they collected their food. And so you can imagine, or can you? I don't know if I can. Imagine just getting the food from having a bowl and wandering up and standing outside somebody's front door. And whatever comes your way, comes your way and that's what you eat uh, but that's so you can imagine getting quite anxious about well am I going to get the curry that I like you know <laughs> many veggie burgers today <laughs> you know you just eat what comes your way and if it's just a poor village then you might just get rice and if it's a poor village in hard times you might not get anything and this is what happened to the those uh, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis they, all, they wouldn't always eat but uh, it said that uh, Kashapa would always just take this in good grace and he wouldn't get upset and if he didn't get a lot to eat and if he didn't get what he liked then he would just take and eat what he got and he wouldn't he wouldn't say anything to the you know you can imagine you're hungry you get your bowl and you, you get a little bit of dal and a little bit of curry you think is that all you're going to give me <laughs> but because you're you're really you're hungry but he said that he never it never crossed his mind but it never even crossed his um his lips, any bad word, any frustrated or anxious or angry word. The third thing about uh, Kashapa that we're told is that he was exemplary in his meditation practice. So in Buddhist practice we have we often are talked about eight dhyanas. There's four dhyanas of form and there's four formulas dhyanas. And um, the very profound meditation states, and it's said that Mahakashapa, as it went on, he, be, he became known Mahakashapa. Uh, it said that Mahakashapa was only second to the Buddha in his ability to go deeply in meditation. And through his practice of meditation, it's said that he developed six supernormal knowledges. So Suryavanksa mentioned three of these yesterday. So there was, if you meditate deeply, you can get six supernormal knowledges. Um, they'll tell you about them because it might inspire you to go and sit there in your meditation. Uh, the first one is that you get magical powers. Yeah, whoa, what about that then? Eh? Yeah. You get magical powers and you get the ability to walk through walls. How cool is that? Yeah. You can walk in water. You can... Uh, sit there and manifest another image of yourself. So there can be two or three of you around. And who's to know that some of us aren't already doing that? Eh? <laughs> yeah. so some of us might be on a retreat and down in Glasgow having a highlight. Yeah. So, 
you can uh, manifest different. That's one of the cities. <laughs> that's one of the magical powers. That's one of the first uh, abinyas they're called, or abinyas, uh, six supernormal knowledges. But that's quite mundane, actually. Yeah, you don't really want to just stop there. You know, you might be able to impress your friends at a party, but there's further that you can go. The the second one is clear audience, so you can hear things at a distance. The third one is that you can tell people's mind, uh, so you can tell what state of mind somebody's in. And this used to really freak me out when I first came along to the Buddhism and I thought, oh my God, they're going to know what's in my mind, you know, because <laughs> I'd heard about this ability of people to read minds. And, oh no. And then it's a great relief to find out that we couldn't. Then it was a great trauma to begin to find out. I had to tell people what was on my mind. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that's the third uh, abenya. Is that uh, you can, you know what's on people's mind. You know if it's a mind of greed or hatred or delusion. You can tell. Yeah. But when we get onto the fourth super knowledge, that's when it begins to get a wee bit more interesting. <laughs> Believe it or not, and that as Super Surya Maxa said yesterday, you begin to recollect former lives. So you're mo- we're moving now from just sort of pretty mundane abilities, pretty cool abilities, but still quite mundane, into something that is beginning to be of the nature of insight. So you're beginning to see that in a former life you were so and so, and you lived so and so, and you did this. And you get, you just see back and back that you've had a whole, there's been a whole stream of lives. So you're, who you are is just beginning to be thrown into a much, much bigger context. And the fifth knowledge is what they call divine eye. And that means that you can see where you go, what your future, what lies in your future. And the deva eye is said to be able to see where you're going in the future. And you also understand that independence of what you do now, that's what gives rise to your future. So what's, what you're doing in your present is creating your future. So that's the deva eye. So those two are, re- are linked around conditioned co-production. So it's a big bit like you can begin to really see that everything that's arising and depends upon conditions. And the sixth uh, supernormal knowledge is the knowledge of the destruction of the ashravas. So Suryavax again said a little bit about that yesterday. But that's the kind of realisation that that capacity to act in any way unskillfully has completely just been rooted out. It's just gone. It's dissolved, as it were, in your consciousness. So you, you, those ashravas are no longer operate in your, in your stream of consciousness, in your mind. So yeah, this is the third major quality about... Mahakashapa. He's renowned for his meditation experience and for his development of those supernormal knowledges. And one of the little stories that I like about uh, Mahakashapa is that on one occasion uh, he was going through a village and there was a, a poor villager, poor female villager and um, she saw this sadhu coming through her village and she just was able to see that there was something about this particular person that was very special. And I think we get that from time to time that we think, oh, there's something really special. This, this person's got something. 
So this was this uh, female villager was was experiencing same as Sada. I just thought, oh God, there's something about this person, and so she knew that he would be on his arms round. So she wanted to offer him. She wanted to uh, support and be in whatever way she could part of what he was involved in. So she offered him some of the. She just had parched rice, we're told. So she offers him a little bit of parched rice, but she also makes the wish that whatever, uh, whatever good this sadhu, this bhikkhu is involved in, could she also partake in? And the only way she's got, in a way, is giving some rice, but she gives some rice, and her giving is her way of getting involved, of being involved, of supporting this uh, thing that she thinks of as quite special. And she gives that to Makashpa. Makashpa receives it. And as she's walking away, uh, we're told that she comes across a poisonous snake who bites her and kills her. So she dies uh, from a snake bite. But she um, she's reborn as a, as a deva, as a devi, as a goddess, because of the skillfulness of that action, uh, just as she was on the point of death. And she remembers how she had this very fortuitous birth. So uh, then she sees, uh, she's able with her deva eye to see Mahakashapa sitting there meditating in his uh, little hut, his little kuti. And she thinks, oh, there's that sadhu. So she comes down and for three days she cleans his hut and for three days replaces the water in his hut. And Mahakashapa <coughs> must be thinking, I thought I'd finished that water. Then it's miraculously refilled. Uh, but this is what the story relates, that this Devi um, spent three days clearing out his, uh, his hut and replacing the drinking water and the washing water. But Mahakashapa originally t- he twigs, ah, there's a Devi doing this. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And he asks her to leave because it wouldn't be appropriate for him as a again as a renunciant that's gone forth to have a devi, a goddess, cleaning out his uh, cleaning out his hut. It's just not appropriate. Can you imagine what the Sunday newspapers would say about <laughs> it? Um, so again he's so that's a lovely little story. And he has another encounter, not just this time with one goddess, but five hundred goddesses see him and they're so impressed by his spiritual life and his what he's doing is that they, they want to come and offer him alms food. Uh, but as they approach, he sees them coming. He says, no it's, no, it's not appropriate for you to... It's not appropriate for me to receive uh, my food from the, the, the gods, the goddesses. So I can't accept this. So he, 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 uh, he says he can't do it. It's not appropriate. So they go off and they're really disappointed. And they are... Um, they're really... There's different layers of gods and goddesses in the Indian mythology. And they're, they're in the, the realm of Shaka, who's the chief of the gods. So he gets to hear what's going on and he thinks, wow, there's this guy sort of meditating. So Shaka, the, the, the chief of the gods, decides that he wants to go and give uh, Mahakashapa his food. He wants to give to him. So he uh, disguises himself because uh, he knows that Mahakashapa won't accept food from a god. So he disguises himself uh, and gives Mahakashapa the food. And Mahakashapa doesn't notice 
until he gets to the rice, and the rice, the fragrance of the rice is just quite exceptional. He thinks, hmm, this is fragrant rice. And uh, then he realises, ah, something, I've been played a trick upon here. And uh, he uh, tells off Shaka, the king of the gods, for inappropriately giving him arms food. So we're getting a picture, I mean, we can kind of laugh at it, but this is somebody who was quite serious about their practice and lived a very simple life and in a way wanted to, in a way, show that, yeah, you could lead a very simple life and not only would it be a simple life, but it would be a really happy, it would be a joyful life. He was, Mahakashiba was one of the main um, disciples of the Buddha and there's possibly about five major disciples uh, well, in, the, in the, the, count, the telling that I heard you have, have Mahamalgalyana and Sariputra and they die, they die before the Buddha but the Buddha dies before Mahakashapa and we're told that Mahakashapa is he's, he's, he's walking, he's on an arms tour with uh, some of his disciples and uh, he's having an afternoon break underneath a fig tree, guess, and uh, he sees another sadhu walking past. And this sadhu is holding a mandarava flower. Yeah. So what's unusual about that? Dasini. It's, <laughs> it's a massive flower. And it's a flower that only grows where? <laughs> yeah, for a friend. Hello, uh, where the mandalas grow? They grow in the deva locus. They grow in the deva locus. Yeah. So they only appear in the de- in the deva locus. They're a sort of magical flower, and said to be what half a league across or something. Massive, massive flower. So I don't know how this. He's maybe he's got it. <laughs> Walking along with this uh, mandala of a flower, uh, uh, but Mahakashapa realizes that something quite special has happened. So he turns. He turns to the uh, sadhu and he says, where did you get that flower? Where did you get that flower? <laughs> and um, the, the sadhu says, well, I was over uh, Kusinara, that's where the Buddha died. I said, I'm over at, I was over at Kusinara and they're building a pile for the Buddha. And that's where I picked it up. And so Kashapa gets this sad news that the Buddha, his teacher, his beloved teacher, has died while he's separate from him. So uh, he's really concerned that he's not going to be able to pay his last respects to his teacher. He's not He's not in sorrow because he knows that everything's impermanent. Some of the people that he's with are really grief-stricken, but it was, we're told that Kashapa wasn't grief-stricken. And he's, but they, they makes their way back to Kusinara. And um, there's been a bit of trouble at Kusinara and the trouble is that, yeah, they've built this pyre to cremate the Buddha, but they can't light it. Yeah. It won't light. Get the matches out. It's not lighting. And uh, this is after a week. So a week later, Kashyapa comes with this band of um, uh, disciples. And they, they're very glad, very glad to be able to have got to say their goodbye and their last respects to the, the Buddha. And they circumambulate clockwise round the pie of the Buddha. And they do that once, and then they go around again, 
And once they've all circumambulated that power twice, the power just spontaneously combusts. And that's the story as I've heard it, without adding anything into it or taking anything away. That's what I've been told. So that's what we're told happened. So that was Kashyapa's farewell to the Buddha. We're not sure. We're not sure how the how Kashyapa died. We're not told about how he died. Um, but we know that he did outlive the Buddha, and that he was a very highly respected uh, disciple of the Buddha. So, where does that leave us? So, it still leaves us two and a half thousand years ago in India. <laughs> we've got to come back. Yeah, so we've got to come back to the present. They're coming back on. They'll be with us. We haven't lost anybody. <laughs> so we're back in Danakosha. It's 2010. It's 20 to 12. So here we have the story of Mahakashapa, yeah, and um, I don't see anybody rushing off to Balwada to get their yellow robes and go. <laughs> um, in a way, uh, but what, what 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 can we make of this? What can we make of this life story? Um, it is of a different time, but it's trying to get something across. There's something I think that we can learn from this story. Um, I think often we can think of taking up a spiritual life and sometimes it can feel like, oh, it means letting go, stopping doing stuff. Uh, and sometimes there are things that we want to move on from and let go of. But there's also things that we want to pick up and make sure that we're practising. So Bill at Mahakashapa, yeah, he was, leaving, he was leaving his worldly life, but his instruction from the Buddha was, don't forget to have a glad heart. Yeah. Mm. So... This, I think, is really important. So some of the things that make us happy are, are, are uh, somehow from the senses. So what, what, what can we do if, we're, if we are living a more simple life? Then how do we maintain a glad heart? I mean, some of the things that are suggested in Sri Ratna are practices like uh, puja, faith and devotion, meditation, study, puja, ethics but also being around in nature, being in nature. So we're very fortunate that we've got Danakosha because it's so beautiful around here. And there's so much, well, there's so much nature. You step outside and there it is, yeah, elements and the natural world in all its glory and beauty is really around us at Danakosha. But also friendship is something that's encouraged to keep our hearts alive and nourished. So that our hearts don't shrivel. So we might sometimes think, oh, I've got to let go of this and do that and do this. But we've got to watch that our hearts remain glad. Yeah. And I think especially, I suppose in Scotland we've got this, you know, we've got this Protestant tradition. Uh, that part of that seems to be about uh, letting go of things, live a simple life. But maybe it hasn't given a lot of attention to that sense of, well, yeah, if you live a simple life, also make sure you're living a glad life. You know, so your heart is really thriving and flourishing. So now, just to finish with, my beautiful assistant. <laughs> yeah. So Buddhism talks about practicing a middle way. 
and that's a middle way between pleasure and asceticism. And one of the one of the most maybe important insights of the Buddha was that you cannot afford just to deny yourself any pleasure. But the pleasures that you give yourself, do they what kind of come down afterwards do they have? What 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 um, uh, yeah, do they lead you on or do they yeah, are they kind of <coughs> are they supportive of your spiritual life? So I think we cannot, we, we, at our peril, do we uh, neglect joy and pleasure? Uh, so where do we get that in our spiritual life? How do we get that? How do we follow a middle way between pleasure and asceticism? So how do you find your middle way? So are you more, are you more in this realm? Are you more hedonist? Or are you more an ascetic? Or do you more happily think, well, I'll, if, I'm, if I deny myself, that chocolate biscuit today, I mean tomorrow I'll get some good karma coming. So what where are you? Where do you kind of place yourself in this are you more an ascetic or are you more a hedonist? And then if you are, well how do you make your way more towards what's a middle way? And how do you gladden your heart? Sure you like Sam. But I said for a when he was writing these up for me I said, and the second thing is how do you gladden your heart? So the language might be a bit flowery, but I've been in England for 15 years, so you have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how do you gladden your heart? Yeah, I think it's a very important question because uh, we have to take that on. Yeah. So I'll leave you with those two questions that maybe we can take into groups if you haven't if we haven't finished with the questions from yesterday. So there we go. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.